Okay, let's speak about these last three limbs in this collection of, of qualities. Remembering that these limbs are very much interactive and remembering that they can in themselves be intentional cultivations that we might spend some time with. So the next of these limbs is the, the quality of tranquility. The Pali word for it actually uh, translates more literally as tranquilizing, <laughs> which initially might not feel like a very <laughs> attractive pro <laughs> prospect or something that you might do to an old cow. Um, but it is about calming. It is about calming. And the classroom of tranquility is agitation. It's not in the best moments of our lives. It's not in the most serene moments of our lives. It is in the moments when mind and body are agitated. Agitated with a mood, agitated with a pattern, agitated with reactivity, in whatever way we experience agitation. And I think we, we can become more skilled at spotting agitation. More skilled at spotting agitation, whether it's of ways that we find ourselves leaning forward into a future with thought or with anticipation, with excitement, with dread, whether it's the agitation that really comes with and is part of the package of obsession and rumination, with, with the agitation that is part of the package of reactivity. I think we, we can be well served by spotting and knowing the landscape of agitation within us. Sometimes we get clumsy when we're agitated. Have you noticed that? Hmm? We drop things, we forget things, we bump into things, you know. Sometimes there's very, very visible, you know, manifestations of agitation. Sometimes it's more subtle and it is often in the field of obsession and rumination. You know, I think in Buddhist psychology, if you think the same thought more than twice, it's an obsession. <laughs> so the bar is raised quite high here, you know. Um, but calming is a verb. It's not a state. It is a verb. It's a way of responding to those waves of agitation that we can feel in the body, that we can feel in the mind. It's so central, isn't it, to meditative practice when we begin by, you know, feel your feet touch the ground, you know, feel that sense of earth, you know, feel your sit bones on the chair, you know, the body is such an ally in calming agitation. This is often our doorway in, is through that present moment connectedness with a body of stillness. Sometimes it's fine, you know, even when your body feels tremendously agitated, to find somewhere in your body that is not agitated. And to begin to expand that sense of calming and stilling, bearing in mind again those teachings in the Satipatthana, you know, Breathing in, calming the patterns of agitation. Breathing out, calming the patterns of agitation. You know, we do live in a world that I feel is really quite an agitated world. Mm -hmm. And we can get agitated, we get so easily triggered into patterns of agitation. 
um, patterns of anxiety, patterns of rumination. We are so easily triggered and learning to change those, our responses to those triggers because we're not going to avoid an agitated world. And again, this is one of the patterns that is, I feel, so infectious, you know. Like, let's practice agitation together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a body, uh, you know, the, the somatic experience here is so very, very helpful to begin to develop an embodied calming, an embodied calmness, you know, where your body is not just all over the place, you know, your eyes are not all over the place, you know, your, your ears are not all over the place. I think of it, you know, when being on, when I used to be on retreat a lot, that, you know, people would often talk about hungry eyes. You know, that when there was agitation, the eyes would become so hungry, you know, seeking endless sensory input, you know, just almost to comfort that sense of agitation. And this is, again, a way of being a wise gatekeeper. You know, people would report to me doing walking meditation or at Gaia House, you know, when you find yourself reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher. <laughs> you know, you know, things are bad. You know, things are bad, you know. There's a lot of agitation going on. And, and then somebody reported to me doing that, and that they read that the first instruction, apparently on every fire extinguisher, is aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. <laughs> and that when they read that, it was suddenly this epiphany moment, you know. <laughs> that the base of the fire was the mood of agitation <laughs> and the pattern of agitation. And this was where the nozzle need, needed to be aimed. You know, it's, it's so, it's so, you know, there's so many ways this happens, isn't it? You, you know, you sit on the underground. Do I sit actually just, I'm just sitting? Or are my eyes reading every ad on the carriage, you know? You know, uh, you know, I have a moment when I'm still, do I immediately reach for my phone, you know? So it, there's so many small ways that maybe feel quite insignificant or banal, you know? And yet, are they adding, are they a part of a pattern? of needing to be always in hyper-arousal. You know, always in this hyper-arousal state because that's how we feel alive when we're kind of hyper-aroused at the sense doors. So I think calming the agitations, you know, I think it is much to do with how we move through the world, how we're touching the world, and then how we're allowing ourselves to be touched by the world. So there's something, I think, extremely practical in cultivating this particular treasure, you know, in cultivating this particular treasure. And it would be a great gift to our children to actually they learn how to cultivate this treasure. Because, you know, you know, the, you know when the Buddha says, who is my friend? And he says, my mind is my friend. He says, who is my enemy? He says, my mind is my enemy. And it is more and more pos- you know, likely, given our accessibility to, you know, I'm certainly not doing a downer on technology, but there is something about overload that can start very, very young in people's lives. 
The next of these limbs is collectedness. The Pali word for this is samadhi, a word that some of you will be familiar with. And this is not about concentration. Please I just put that word in your recycle bin. Yeah, it's not about concentration, it's about collectedness, the unification of body, mind, and present moment. The integration of body, mind, and present moment. Now we, we're probably acutely aware of how often there's disunification between body, mind, and present moment. You know, the body one place, the mind already somewhere else, present moment forgot, forgotten, the sense of disunification or disconnection. So samadhi translates as to gather, to gather together, you know, to gather together. And the image that I use, I mean, in, in the early texts, I use the image of gathering cows quite a lot, you know, because that would be an image that everybody could relate to, you know, about get, getting your cows together in one field. The image that I use is of Welsh sheepdogs, you know, and you know that a good sheepdog in Wales knows how to go off into the hills and gather the sheep without hurting them, without frightening them, gather them together and move them from fields where they're no longer nourished to fields where they act, to fields where they actually thrive. This is how I think of collectedness. This is a really a huge choice in our lives. You know? What are the fields where our sheep don't thrive? You know, the fields of habit, you know, the fields of, you know, leaning backwards into the past or forward into the future. You know, the fields of rumination, of obsession, of endless narrative telling. You know, where are the fields that our sheep really don't thrive? So this is not about a forced gathering, but it's a very intentional unifying and integrating. And then we think about the fields where we do thrive, you know. The fields of, 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 you know, these qualities, the fields of present moment recollection, you know, the fields of clear comprehension, the fields of the Brahma Viharas. It's really about really being aware of the fields that we do, where we do thrive. It's, this is sometimes really interrupting habits of a lifetime, you know sometimes really interrupting habits of a lifetime. And it begins with some discernment, you know. It's not about right and wrong or good and bad, but it's actually really that kind of honest discernment. You know, am I actually thriving when my attention is consumed by this or preoccupied with this? Am I actually thriving in the realms of fantasy or rumination? You know, am I actually thriving in the fields of resentment or anxiety? Is this where we thrive? So we're learning, and you can think of mindfulness or sati as being the good sheepdog. You know, mindfulness or sati is beginning that process of gathering and collecting and beginning to really unify and integrate body, mind, and present moment. This is a this feature so powerfully in the Buddha's map of awakening and the Buddha's map of inner development. You know, any of you who are at all familiar 
with the early texts, you know, you will see this encouragement over and over again to, to cultivate this, this unification, to cultivate this oneness, to cultivate the samadhi as being the climate in which insight really develops. And the Buddha saw this as being the greatest service of the greatest benefit to our well-being and our flourishing. You know, one of the um, synonyms for nibbana or liberation is nipapancha. Nipapancha. The mind that is papancha-free. Are you, are you familiar with the word papancha? Uh, some of you? Okay, I know anybody unfamiliar? Papancha is the proliferation of thinking rooted in underlying patterns and tendencies that distorts and colors our capacity to see things as they actually are. And papancha, you know, th this is our storytelling motor, you know. It's our, it's our proliferation. And, and you know, in terms of Buddhist psychology, this is, this is where we commit psychological vandalism. This is where we engage in emotional vandalism. It's through papancha, through the, this, this generation of narrative that just clouds our ability to see things as they actually are. And there are different strands of papancha. You know? There is craving-based papancha. You know, all the stories we, we generate about, you know, what we want and need, you know, and the perfect vacation and, you know, the ideal relationship and the, the moment when we, you know, retire into, you know, into meditative enlightenment and, you know, the, the craving-based papancha about the next moment, about the world that we want, the world that we need, the, the world that we imagine, the craving-based papancha. There's aversion-based papancha. You know, all the stories we tell about the people we dislike, the things that we hate about ourselves, you know, the, the things that we reject in life, all of the stories we tell about um, everything we want to get rid of, everything that we want to get rid of. There's a strand of papancha which is called baya papancha, which is fear-based proliferation. This is all of our worries, you know, our over-rehearsals, um, our strategies to make the world safe, um, to be in control. You know, the fear-based papancha of, you know, uh, catastrophe thinking. Um, you know, everything that might go wrong in the future. It's a baya papancha. It's a powerful one. Huh? There's view-based papancha. You know, you turn on your television or radio, you know, and you get exposed to the world of view-based papancha, of ditty papancha. You know, this is how life is, this is how people are, you know, this is how the world is, you know, this is how politicians are, you know, that endless kind of recycling. And of course, we had a whole lot of COVID papancha, didn't we? that actually spread across many of these different fields. And perhaps a stream of papancha that's most powerful and maybe the root of all of the other streams of papancha is mana papancha, it's the story of me. The story of who I am, who I need to be, who I used to be, what's good about me, what's terrible about me, you know, what I do wrong, what's imperfect, what I, sometimes what I do right, how people think of me, 
all of the self-judgments, all of the self-blame, all of this is within the realm of mana, papancha, which I think generates all of the other streams of papancha. And this is what actually undermines so much well-being. It undermines so much well-being, so much. It leeches joyfulness from our lives. So a lot of this limb of awakening, of samadhi, or collectedness, is learning to calm the agitation of this particular pattern. And it's not making an enemy out of thinking. You know, there's so much thinking that is creative, reflective, investigative, contemplative, you know, really, really helpful. Probably about 5% of what we do. And for some people that might be an overestimate. And so much of our thinking is actually really rooted in this much more driven, this much more driven, compulsive thinking that we call papancha. So, so much of collectedness is about learning to calm this, learning to calm this, learning to develop this well-trained, you know, I use the word, the Buddha uses it all the time, this well-trained heart and mind. And when the, the Buddha speaks about this in one of the discourses, he says, you know, a person with a well-trained heart thinks the thoughts they want to think when they want to think them and doesn't think the thoughts that they don't wish to think. So it is bringing the thinking process very much into the field of intentionality, of being something quite conscious, about something being quite chosen, rather than something that is driven and compulsive. And this may sound impossible, you know, it may sound like, oh, I can't do that, you know, look at the, my mind, you know, the endless movies. But we can, we can. And samadhi, again, is not just something that we, we develop on a cushion, that's very helpful. But this collectedness, this unification of body, mind and present moment is also something we cultivate in our lives and in the classroom of disunification. You know, just being increasingly sensitive to those times when, you know, we find ourselves with our minds leaning forward in one place and our bodies somewhere else. What is it in that moment to unify, to integrate, to pause, to calm, to collect, to bring together? When we see our minds beginning to spin in some particular story, what is it that helps us to step out of that? You know, whether it's being more rooted in the mindfulness of the body, whether it's taking our attention elsewhere, these are acts of kindness that we bring to ourselves. It's not easy, but you know, generations of people on this path indeed do tell us it is possible. That it is possible. And this is something to imagine, you know, it's something to clearly imagine a papancha free mind, you know, a papancha free zone, and how that would actually look for us. And how we begin to actually, because sometimes we're rather a little bit in love with our papancha. Yeah? Or we see it as problem solving, you know, or we delight in it, you know, you think about rumination as being seen as being a, a mechanism of problem solving, even though it clearly doesn't work. But sometimes we are a little bit too in love with our stories, it can happen. Um, you know, I enjoy a good fantasy. You know, you think, why not? Why not? 
because, you know, you repeat something often enough and it becomes a habit. Think about when things go catastrophically wrong in our lives, how much we become papancha-prone, you know, as a way of trying to problem-solve or fix or, you know, get over doubt, you know, find some way of response, how much we kind of rely or, you know, unconsciously rely upon proliferation as a way to navigate through catastrophe. And it, it doesn't help that much. It doesn't help that much. I mean, you know, my parents, my father died during the lockdown, but my parents, you know, they never understood what I did, ever. Um, in fact, my mother tells people I teach people to hum. I don't quite show <laughs> But what I do know is that when anything goes catastrophically wrong in their life, they call me. You know, and then my father, when he was alive, would introduce me to people. He'd say, this is my daughter, she's calm. <laughs> As if this was some sort of weird illness, you know, like, like something so outside of his scope of reference, you know. This is my daughter, she's calm. You know? As if I was born calm or something. You know? They couldn't put it down to my expertise in humming. <laughs> but it is a gift to people. Because it actually makes us able to be, you know, the one that doesn't sink the boat. And this is where we inch our way towards the last of these qualities, which is equanimity. You know, it's, it's really that, that embodied understanding, you know, whether it's in the midst of COVID, in the midst of the war, to realize actually how much we are not in control of the world of conditions and you know we like to believe that we are but it doesn't mean that we're helpless you know equanimity is about equally near all things and how to stand in the midst of the really challenging that the joys and the sorrows with a sense of poise and balance and every time i think of equanimity i think of you i tell you why i think about you when i think about equanimity because I think of equanimity as that embodied understanding that we cannot be in control of the world of conditions, but we're not helpless. We can respond. We bring the conditions of mindfulness and compassion and care. But I also think it's an embodied understanding that we do not have the power to change the course of another person's mind. You know, that we might, no matter how much we love them, you know, no matter how much we care of them, we know that we do not have the power to change the course of another person's mind. That we can be surrounded by people who love us and care for us, but we know that they don't have the power to change the course of our hearts and minds. And that's a painful understanding, but it's also the truth. And the reason I think about you is because many, many years ago, and I don't even know if you remember it, you stood up at London Insight and you talked about your son and how much you cared about your son and seeing your son that you couldn't help him in all the ways that you wanted to help him. And you spoke about seeing a painting in an art gallery of a mother standing beside a river and watching the river sweep away her child and in the painting the mother had no arms. It touched me so deeply and I thought this is actually, this is really what equanimity is all about. It's about being able to bear witness, you know, to the difficult and the painful and the heartbreaking in people we love and in people we don't know. 
and really having that embodied understanding that we would do everything we could to be of service, to help, to support, and yet still we cannot change the course of another person's heart and mind, that it's in their heart, in their hands. And it also struck me that after you said that, and I don't even know if you were aware of that dynamic, at the end of the day, there were a number of people who surrounded you with advice how much we want to be able to fix things and think that if I just did that or I just did that, you know, this would fix this. Well, you had done all of that. Yeah. You know, you had done all of that and you'd come to that point of saying, you know, I hold you, but I cannot change the course of your heart and mind. So equanimity is very much, it's not a state. Equanimity is very much an embodied understanding of, of it's an embodied insight that there is change, you know, there is unpredictability, that there is uncertainty, and, you know, that there is loss, and there is joy, um, and there is heartache, and there is love, and actually how to stand in the midst of that, and to be equally near to it all, and knowing that it's, it's not our fault if something falls apart, but it's about having that willingness to keep, keep showing up, that's the virya. And that's severe. So I think it's just so crucial not to think of equanimity as a state, but as an embodied understanding. And that, you know, it's not my fault if things fall apart, you know? Um, it's not my fault. Conditions coalesce in ways that, you know, we can't predict. And yet we can stand in the middle of it. And equanimity or opeka translates of in the midst of in the midst of. And that's actually where we already stand, you know, we don't have any choices about that. It's where we already stand. But that standing with an embodied understanding, that embodied poise and balance that is really doesn't leave kindness and compassion and joyfulness behind, but allows us to be responsive. You know, that starts, I think, in this, again, in the small moments in our lives, you know, where we find ourselves, you know, somehow touched and somehow struck by something being unpredictable or not turning out the way we thought it would, or, you know, our world's crumbling in some way, sometimes even in just small ways, you know, somebody gave you the wrong kind of tea, you know, like somebody delivers Earl Grey tea instead of English breakfast tea, you know, how easily we get shaken that, you know, that, that shouldn't be happening, you know, I, I, I just need to fix that, you know? How easily we get shaken and how easily we don't live that understanding of, you know, of not being entirely in control of the world of conditions, but also not being helpless. So that is actually all I want to say today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.